welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Dr. Miriam Sweeney, a critical cultural digital media scholar who studies anthropomorphic design, virtual assistants, voice interfaces, and AI through the lenses of race, gender, and sexuality. Her current project, Facing Our Computers, Identity, Interfaces, and Intimate Data, explores the linkages between identity, design, and data valence in AI voice assistants, digital assistants, and chatbot interfaces. In this interview, we explore a lot of topics, some of which include, what are some of the ethical concerns we should have about chatbots and virtual assistants? How can these technologies perpetuate gender stereotypes? What is ethical anthropomorphic design? What are the ethics of emoji design and why does it matter? We are so grateful that Miriam was willing to come on the podcast, especially because she was one of our first supporters on Twitter uh, that gave us words of encouragement and words of wisdom as we began this project. Uh, So it's very special for us to be able to interview her and now to share this interview with you. We are so excited to have Miriam Sweeney here on the show today. How are you doing, Miriam? I'm doing very well. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. As we begin, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what motivates you uh, a little bit as a researcher, but also just as a person. Sure. Um, So I'm motivated by, um, by people, right? And I've always been interested in sort of the social science or the sort of the people aspects of things. Um, and that still motivates me, you know, today and also motivated by the things that are all around me, right? The technologies that I use and encounter and interface with all the time. So kind of combining those two things, I've been very interested in, um, in, in, uh, researching technologies, um, interfaces, design, you know, digital media that pops up in my daily life. So yeah, we can, I don't know how much, you know, background you want at this moment, but we can keep exploring Uh that. Yeah. Well, do you have a favorite? Um, this is a completely unfair question. Do you have a favorite technology or a favorite like technological interface? Because I know you do a lot of work with interfaces <laughs> and, and we'll get into those specifics. But do you have a do you have like a favorite or a most effective maybe is another way to frame that? Interesting. A most effective interface. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, it's interesting. Like I'm a Mac user. And so I do love the way all of my Mac products play together nicely, you know, creating sort of a smooth environment of interfacing for me. Um, also in terms of like writing and doing research, I, you know, I, I mean, I write in word, which, you know, is we are all familiar with, but kind of sucks, but I, I love interfaces like Scrivener that allow you to do things like storyboard and like think differently or outside the box and, you know, those can be clunky as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in interfaces that are letting me kind of break up ideas or move across platforms smoothly. So that's what I like as a user. Yeah. Do you think that you grew up being a very technologically inclined person, like always surrounded by gadgets and getting the newest thing from Apple or Microsoft or whatever company it was? Or do you think that that just kind of happened naturally with your research as you started to grow into that in academia? That's a really interesting question. So no, I would not have described myself as technologically like inclined. That wouldn't have been an aspect of my identity growing up at all. 
I didn't have, um, you know, a computer at home growing up. So I had one when I first went to college, my first experience of getting a computer, gosh, I really did not think we were gonna talk about this. But now I'm very excited. Um, was like a gateway, you know, in this big, like, cow patterned boxes or whatever. Um, and I got a computer to go off to college. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, I, like I had done a little bit of computing in school, typing and stuff like that, which makes it sound like I'm like live in the dark ages. I am like not that old, you guys. Okay. But <laughs> like our household just didn't have that. So my own like self narrative was never like, oh, I'm going to go forward and like study technology. Like that wasn't a part of the thing. And where that actually kind of came into the picture was much later when I was getting a master's degree. Um, I was getting my master's in library science at the University of Iowa, and I was offered um, an assistantship to work with information technology services. And I thought, oh, you know, I am not qualified for this. Like, I, I'm just like a very like just medium user of, you know, your main office products. And they were like, no, no, we'll just teach you and you'll figure it out and you'll help with instructional design. And so from that, like graduate school student, you know, assistantship is really where I gain like exposure and the confidence to think of myself as technological. So it's interesting because I think that narrative is actually um, not uncommon that like um, I know a lot of other like women, particularly who would say, oh, no, I'm not necessarily technological, even though we're interfacing with technology all the time. But in that role, I gained confidence to be able to say, no, like I'm interested in technology and I have technological skills, right? And now, I mean, I would say like, I'm a digital media scholar, like I study technology, but that was not, that was like, not like a, you know, passion building kits from elementary school kind of thing. So that came later. Yeah. yeah. For some of our listeners who might not know uh, what digital media studies is or, or even library science um, could you just say a little bit, like just kind of situate what the questions that you're asking in general are in your research? Yeah, sure. So library and information science, I think a lot of people have no idea what that is, right? So um, maybe they often think like, oh, like librarians, I got it. You know, it's like books and like buns and cardigans and, you know, that is that is represented. Yes. But it's um, it's it's a broader, more interdisciplinary field that also takes into account sort of all of the ways you might think of you know, managing information, preserving information, accessing information through a number of kinds of technological systems and analog systems as well, right? So it's it's not just library institution, although that's part of it, but it, it's also database management. And it really bridges a lot of like humanistic and um, computational, you know, kind of domains together, which is really exciting. I always tell students like, whatever domain you're coming from, you have a home here because there's always a way in, you know, to um, library information studies. So my way also bridges those domains as well. Um, so I take kind of a humanistic, you know, rhetorical cultural studies approach to studying digital media technologies and, you know, kind of bring those two perspectives together. And one of the fields that's pretty well known, at least outside of the academic world is HCI, human-computer interaction. And I knew about that before I knew about what information sciences was. Full disclosure, I'm a PhD student in an information science program. Uh, I still don't know what information science really is. <laughs> and I think actually a lot of people in my program don't know what it is either. Um, do you think you might be able to explain some of the differences between HCI and information science? Or are they just kind of situated within each other how like what is what are the differences what, what really are they yeah. 
That's so funny because the other day I was actually having a conversation with a colleague about defining information science. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I can define it. I mean, I got a degree in it. I teach it. I, you know, recently tenured. I'm like, I, I still don't know. But I think it's because it is such a like a little like, you know, a uh, hairball of different domains together. So, yeah, I, you're right. It's like if we were mapping it, like I definitely would say HCI is related. And I think what we're really talking about is like just a little differences on how people view the kinds of questions they would prioritize, you know, and information science. I think about things like, uh, you know, information behavior and, you know, metadata and linked data and the semantic web and how we sort of organize and ontologies, you know, I'm just going to give keywords. And then in HCI, I'm really thinking about like, you know, um, user interfaces, user experience, you know, these different kinds of questions about access that have to do with the technological system. And it, those are obviously related, you know, and we often share words and terminology, but I find that like, it's the orientation on, you know, the kind of questions that interest and motivate that are just slightly different. So. Yeah. And I locate myself in there as well, but with the additional edge of like sort of the more like, you know, cultural studies driven kinds of questions. So I'm always like HCI, like I kind of do that, but I don't do it like HCI folks describe it. And then like, you know, so it's like we're all kind of we can all be in the same place, but the the frameworks are a little different. Yeah, and in, in my experience, we can also get really lost in in the jargon and sometimes uh, lose some of where where we're going and why it matters. And uh, I'm wondering if like maybe an example might help uh, for our listeners as well. So I know you do some work and some research on digital assistants and chatbots. Um, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that research and then uh, maybe even more about like why why that's important and why that matters. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, so chatbots and digital assistants, voice assistants, virtual assistants, these are all words that kind of mean sim a similar kind of set of technologies. Um, and uh, I find that people are familiar with these things if you just give examples of them, right? So they might not know what a chatbot is, but if you're like, remember Microsoft Clippy, <laughs> you know, then they come back and they're like, oh yeah, that sucked, right? And it's like, right, that's the chatbot. Um, or, you know, older things like Julia and Eliza, these are chatbots that, you know, are kind of famous. And now we have virtual assistants and voice assistants like Siri and Alexa, right? They're all around us all the time. So those are the kinds of technologies I'm interested in. All of those technologies are, you know, kind of social technologies. They are, they, you know, they're designed to interact with people. Um, and the, the sort of smart virtual assistant technologies like Alexa and Siri and all of that also are, you know, AI driven. So they are smart technologies. They use machine learning. You know, they're they're doing all that um, in a way that like the earlier chatbots weren't really doing. It's they're related. You know, it's kind of a, a continuum of technologies. So why does it matter? Um, these technologies, well, you know, they're increasingly integrated into like everything we're doing. So, you know, I, I'm astounded because I started studying these technologies at a time when I was like, no, guys, this is going to be really important. And now I'm like, I don't, you don't even have to make that argument because they're integrated like all across your house and us in every, you know, in Internet of Things technologies, um, like voice interfacing is like, you know, the killer app of of this time moment. And, um, you know, so it's like, we're seeing the integration of these and they're moving from just like, you know, personal use and domestic use to like, you know, public use and e-government and like healthcare and um, across all these different domains. So really we're seeing like kind of a huge ubiquitous spread uh, for these technologies. I, I, you made me think 
for the first time in many years about, about, awesome. <laughs> about Clippy though, specifically, specifically remembering the, the image of Clippy in Microsoft Word. And uh, I always thought back to like, uh, you know, AOL, AOL, like AIM, um, Instant Messenger as like the first time where I interacted with chatbots. But you're right. It like Clippy has, has a place in my heart. Also partially in my nightmares, the eyes always kind of worried me a little bit, but uh, especially as a kid. Um, but I'm wondering if, um, do you see kind of the the ethical questions um, that we might ask about a chatbot like Clippy? Do you, do you see them as kind of the same questions that we might ask about uh, Alexa or some of the more modern chatbots? And what might some of those ethical questions be? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, there is a continuity, right? Because I think with Clippy, you know, you mentioned those googly eyes that are watching you. And there are some questions about things like, um, you know, like surveillance and, you know, standardization and, um, how the interface is sort of capturing our, our information or encouraging us maybe to engage in particular ways with the interface. Um, and so certainly those kinds of questions are you know, present with like Alexa, um, but, you know, but greater even, you know, in terms of um, the questions about data capture and, um, you know, transparency in the system, right? Like what data is being captured? Like, when is Alexa listening? And then what happens to that data, right? So I think that, yeah, there are some similar kinds of ethical questions. Um, something that I'm interested in as like a way into those ethical questions is also asking about like the, the design representation itself, you know, like how we choose to represent those technologies, you know, in humanistic ways um, also conveys something, right? The designer is making choices um, about particular identities that, you know, are seen as desirable and, and why, you know, that's an interesting question. But for me, it's just the question that kind of allows you to start pulling the thread to the other kinds of questions that you're asking about, you know, questions about like what's happening behind the interface um, with the data and stuff as well. I'm a little bit curious what your viewpoint is on a specific part of the design representation that happens in a lot of virtual assistants. So I know there's a little bit of a trade-off when it comes to female voices in virtual assistants because um, there's been a lot of research that's been done on how uh, people tend to trust female voices more, which is why a lot of companies tend to make their virtual assistants default to female. But there's also been a lot of backlash that these female voices are kind of perpetuating the stereotype of the female secretary. And so I'm curious if you've dove into this dilemma in your research, and even if you haven't, just kind of what your opinion is about it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's, it represents to me this kind of design logic, um, like a kind of chicken and egg situation that we get into, right? Where, you know... Um, but people like it, right? People respond well, like we polled users, right? So then we have HCI folks who are like, okay, we've done some, lots of studies. We see that um, because of social norms, you know, um, user sets prefer female voices around particular kinds of subjects and male voices around other kinds of subjects. And it's related to ideas about gender and authority and domains, right? Um, so we, we would take more, um, guidance from a female assistant um, with domestic matters, but a male assistant, perhaps if it was more computationally oriented, you know, that kind of thing. And then it becomes like, okay, so maybe then a good design practice is just to, to use that information and give people what they want. Um, but then we're now locked in a feedback loop that's kind of tautological in a way, right? So something I, I am interested in is thinking about how the kind of 
design best practices and design guidelines become instantiated and then kind of unquestionable, you know, like, oh, we can't deviate from that or user base doesn't want it. They won't react to it, right? Or, um, or such things. But then it becomes like, okay, well, we've really locked that gender norm in now, you know, like it's, it's kind of immovable. <laughs> so I think there is a danger in that, that tautology that it becomes unquestioned design logic that gains kind of a, um, like a universal status that is immovable, but then we can't design out of it, you know? So I think that is a problem, right? Like we should definitely be, be, be challenging ourselves um, to identify stereotypes and then you know, not just lean on them because it's easy to do so, right? Like that there's more to it than that. So. Yeah, what, uh, what do you think is the role of um, folks or companies who are designing these chatbots and questioning some of those gender stereotypes? Like I, I could imagine the argument being that uh, we're going to lose revenue if we don't use this, you know, substantiated like female voice because it's the best practice of the industry and we want to make money because we're a small startup, something like that. Um, but do you think there's a, an ethical um, need, I guess, for these companies to to change the status quo in that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because what I just heard you say is that actually gender and capitalism share intertwined logics, right? That it's profitable to you know rely on that stereotype. So we can't disrupt the gender logic because it would disrupt the capital logic. And in fact, they're the same, right? So this is the thread that we need to pull on actually is to see that there's a lot of logics that line up and they start to kind of bolster each other. Um, it's interesting, like my research now, I'm starting to kind of explore uh, interventions into design that are trying to what I'm calling kind of like remediate or like reface gender in the interface. So rather than just leaning on that, you know, that tried and true design tactic, um, are trying to do something else. And there's kind of different tactics, right? Like we're seeing, I think, um, tech companies are having kind of a moment of being called into accountability in different ways across the board, right? Um, like Facebook, you know, has been getting nailed with like since 2016 with, you know, hey, what is your role in, you know, providing, providing good information and things like that. And Amazon, certainly, you know, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, news about how do you treat workers and, um, you know, workers are striking and all, all of these kinds of accountabilities. And one one interesting thing is that like this question about like gender and voice assistance is also kind of emerging as like an accountability piece. And so we're seeing like um, more options for integrating like, oh, male voice assistant voices, you know, and um, as a as a, an option, or there's also some that are, I forget which company it is, who's doing the like celebrity voices, right? Like John Legend and things like that, like have a celebrity voice, right? More user customization. So that's kind of like one end of it. It's a, a kind of a very normative approach, right? That like, okay, well, people are mad that like we only have like female voice assistants, so we'll give you more options, like male voice assistants, it'll be fine. And then we see on the other hand, you know, what I would say like more radical interventions that's appropriate for this podcast, I think, right? Um, and to ask more questions about like, well, what would, what would it mean though to like try to disrupt gender in design a little bit? So I don't know if you saw the, um, the Q, the genderless AI, I'll have to send a link after the podcast if you have notes and things for that. But, um, you know, companies and, and nonprofits are kind of partnering to, to position like, hey, what if we designed a voice assistant that you could talk to, but, you know, modulate that voice into like a really gender neutral frequency um, and 
use the, use the voice training off of um, non-binary, you know, trans people, and then take like, you know, kind of an amalgam of those voices and put those together, you know, what, what would that give us? Could we design a genderless, you know, virtual assistant? So that's interesting, you know, that's a different approach. Um, and then there have been other approaches, like there's the feminist AI initiative. They have a cool website where they're trying to like specifically design like feminist AI. Like what does that look like in terms of the kind of gender transcript, the, the kind of transcripts your AI like actually says to you and how do they respond and um, in ways that kind of break some of the, the gender dialogue that is sometimes created. Um, so there's some different approaches, you know, where people are trying to do just that, like, let's, let's interrupt, let's think outside and, you know, not just repurpose that common sense logic. Yeah. It's definitely interesting with virtual assistants. I think that there's a lot of, um, underlying issues that people don't really notice, like, you know, gender normativity and, um, there's a lot of the things that you were just mentioning. And one of the things that people tend to think about a lot when it comes to virtual assistants, especially in my experience, is uh, this surveillance piece that you mentioned before, the first ethical dilemma you mentioned, uh, and the fact that they're always listening to us and this like fear of, of how much data are they collecting. And I have to ask you, as a researcher in this space, do you own a, an, Am an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home or a virtual assistant of some kind? Uh, if so, are you scared of it? And if not, why not? That's such a good question. It's like harder and harder to not, you know, to like not be in that landscape, right? So I have really tried very hard to not be in a voice assistant landscape. So I do not have any Alexa enabled items, you know, and I have thought about getting, you know, an Echo device just for work purposes, but I really just not that comfortable with it, honestly. Um, and I also just kind of want to not like I, you know, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to own it. I could, there's lots of ways to research this thing. But um, and that's a that's a digital methods topic that we can you know talk about. But um, yeah, I've really voice assistants have been like the line. And I have like increasingly encountered other like Internet of Things kind of technologies, right? Like recently I got a smart thermostat, um, but she's not, or it's not, and Lexa enabled, right? I know, I know, I caught myself. So yeah, I've really tried to resist it, but they're hard because they're becoming integrated into like literally everything. So it's, it's becoming an environment where you do have to opt out because opt-in is just the norm, you know? So yeah, I always tell my students though, like, hey, who, who owns one of these? Just throw that in the trash, you know, like, <laughs> Kidding, not kidding, just seriously, because I do worry that we, we're becoming, um, we're linking our data through so many um, systems, which is obviously happening either way. And, you know, if you're carrying your cell phone around, then it's not like you're immune to this, you know, your cell phone is also kind of listening to you, right? And I have Siri and things, but I, I have that turned off. So it's not that you're not in that surveillance environment, but um, there is something about the the voice recording, the, the bio, that biometric feature that I feel we need to, and like facial recognition, like we need to really watch, you know, um, how deep we're going to let these biometric uh, 
captures roll out. I have to catch you on the uh, anthropomorphizing the uh, yeah the air conditioning unit or whatever you said it was because uh, this is something that happens a lot. I, I do it uh, with my own, with my roommate's Amazon Echo um, and with you know different chatbots and virtual assistants that I've talked to. I think it's pretty common for people to use she or he and and to really think about these devices as a human like thing. And I know that you've done a lot of work with anthropomorphic design. So I was wondering if you could maybe uh, first just define what that is, and then also talk a little bit about the the work that you've done in that space. Yeah, certainly. So anthropomorphism is, you know, giving the human characteristics and traits to an inanimate device. And we, we do this with devices and things and objects and animals all the time, right? So it's not just it's not just limited to technology. So people anthropomorphize their their ships and cars as she, you know, and um, their ro rocks. I don't know, whatever, whatever, pet rock. I don't know where that came from. Um, so it's really just a familiarity thing. It's how humans socialize with each other. And we just apply that to other stuff as well. So it's a very kind of, it's a, it's a feature of being a social creature. Um, so that in and of itself is not really a problem. So anthropomorphization as a design strategy then kind of specifically takes that and then cultivates it and leverages it within design um, so that we can feel or the user can feel more comfortable with the technology um, and interact with it in ways that they already are socially familiar with. Right. So it's like, I know how to talk to you all. We're both humans. We can do that. Okay. Actually talking to other humans is really challenging and full of a lot of sticky areas. So it's not that simple of a metaphor really. But the idea is that if your computer has similar features and characteristics, you will kind of be like, oh yes, this is familiar. I know what to do. So it's really just about familiarity for the user, an entryway into um, setting up a kind of expectation for interaction in the device. So, but it's drawing on social features. And again, social features actually very tricky. And so that's what I think is fun to study about anthropomorphic design, because, you know, in the examples we've already talked about, you know, features like gender and race or sexuality and, and background and class all come into play in human sociality, right? Like when you meet another person, there's actually a lot of background information that is framing the kind of interaction you have. Um, so even though it sounds easy, like, oh, well, we'll just design, you know, a friendly computer interface, you know, to talk to as a person, um, those, those same factors are still there influencing how we interpret things like trustworthiness, right, or um, friendliness, you know, those kinds of characteristics that user, user design, you know, is trying to facilitate for us. Um, those are really actually kind of heady categories that are framed by things like race and gender and class, right? When you were talking just now, I, I started thinking about marketing as well um, and how these different categories that we're familiar with can uh, be used to make us more comfortable in ways that might be really beneficial in one way and possibly um, tap into some more, uh, I don't want to say abusive territory, but I'll say abusive territory <laughs> in terms of how they're deployed. Um, how can we determine some metrics for like when it's maybe appropriate to use uh, some of this either gendered language or anthropomorphic design and when it goes uh, too far or, or it's dangerous? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of comes back to the question again about, um, you know, kind of creating these design standards and the role of standards in all of these kinds of design situations 
is itself a sticky area, right? Because a standard is usually taking, um, you know, best for a certain population kind of approach. Um, and that, that always means that what's best for a certain kind of population stands in then for best for all, right? And um, it's our questions about power can ask, well, then whose who's best practice, you know, gets to kind of, uh, you know, blanket hegemonically over, you know, the best practices of others. And so that is like the sticky point of trying to say like, okay, well, in these instances, like it's okay to do X or, or what have you. So I, I find that like, I am unable to offer kind of a universal <laughs> guideline for that and metric for it. But we can look at, or and the approach I should say I, I choose to take is to survey the landscape um, and look at design trends to see, you know, if we can identify like, okay, what are the prevailing design trends? And then where do we see um, deviations from those trends and why? Like, what does that mean? So for instance, um, you know, as we've been talking about, mostly virtual assistants are designed as women. A lot of times they're also culturally coded as white women um, by the vocal stylings they have and by the kind of, um, sometimes even by the like, you know, the, the naming or the, um, the, the embodied features they might have. And if they're just voice, then it could be the kind of, um, the, the kind of English script that they're, you know, that they're using, but also the kind of uses and applications that they're being marketed for tell us a lot of things about the cultural codes around um, gender and race. So I'm always really interested in virtual assistants that deviate from that somehow and, and then wonder like, why, what kinds of choices that the designers make about audience and use that dictated that in this case, they wanted to use, you know, a assistant that was, you know, maybe racialized differently or um, gendered differently. So yeah, so it's not I so I don't have an answer about like what what are the metrics that we should be establishing, but I, I do think that there is some work to be done around um, you know, the kind of strategic use and of, of different identities in different um, markets. And and questions about like who's controlling that identity, right? Is that dictated by the community who is the audience or or not? You know, like those kinds of questions of power often sort of surface as you you know, dig into the examples a bit more. That's actually something that I'm curious about, because if we were to create virtual assistants that are a little bit more culturally diverse and aware of their surroundings, so let's say we have an Alexa that is launched in South America that is like much more Latinx than uh, the Alexa that is launched in the U.S., um, does that mean, is that bad for a company that is U.S. based to try to create or try to deploy something in a place that they might not necessarily capture all the cultural norms of? Uh, is it better that they tried? Are there some harmful consequences by doing that? Uh, what, what is your take on that? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, right? For me, the question is that we have to link like the design of the interface with the deeper, you know, operations and applications of the technology itself, like that they're not actually separate. So a question that we have is, so if the question is like, okay, so we designed, uh, you know, a Latinx um, Alexa for Latin America, for South America that, you know, uses colloquial speech and, and the correct dialect and you know, maybe looks like, you know, looks Latinx, um, is not white, perhaps, right? Um, is that okay? 
Um, I guess the question I still have is, do these technologies at the core like serve these communities or are we just trying to get buy-in so that again, we're, there's, so that the companies are trying to create trust, but is that trust deserved, you know? Um, and, and I think that those questions go together, you know, because if, you know, the design is trying to create trust and community, but trust and community for it to be authentic need to, you know, actually be in service of the community. Um, and, and I have some questions about whether, you know, that's being achieved across the board with some of these technologies. Does that make sense? Yeah, it raises the question also of intent versus impact as well. So a company could have the intent to just try to make a bunch of money in an emerging market. Um, and the impact might be to create a more you know, inclusive space based on certain definitions. But to what degree do we treat that as you know, ethical in the entire story of it? Is uh, Because if the uh, intention isn't there, then... You know, and then that's that's where I get into it as like more a philosophy <laughs> PhD student of like, well, what what models are we even using? Um, but I was wondering if we could take a, uh, a same, same, but different uh, turn in the conversation to talk about emojis, um, because I know you've done some work about emojis, which is connected, especially in terms of how, you know, race and gender is reified in these technological spaces. Um, but but what's the deal with the emojis? And again, like what what is at stake with how we design our emojis and how we use them? Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, thinking about interfaces, but maybe from like a little different example, um, emojis to me still have a lot of, you know, interface effects. We're interfacing through emojis and interpersonal communication. Um, to me, emojis became, I, you know, I wrote a paper about emoji I be, because I was really interested when the skin tone modifiers rolled out, you know, in 2016. Um, and uh, I was just like, wow, this is an interesting approach to, you know, the, the emoji problem, which had been when emojis came to the U.S. and North American markets, that they were all white to start with. And, you know, users, mostly users of color, you know, were like, what the hell? You know, this is not um, representative of, of me in any way. And um, there's obviously a problem here. So um, the the modification from Unicode or the response to all of this was, okay, we're going to put these skin tone modifiers out there. And to me, it just really became kind of like an interesting, like microcosm of thinking about like racial politics and the kind of, you know, the kind of um, representational politics that we're seeing play out across different kinds of media. Like at the same time that was happening, at the same time, the call for diverse emojis was happening in the U.S. It was also like the moment Black Lives Matter really surfaced, you know, the Trayvon with Trayvon Martin. It was like the same moment. And then right after that was like Oscars so white, you know. So there was like all of these issues about not just representation, but also police violence and, um, you know, racial inequality and oppression that, you know, persist and just, you know, are, are, ever, are still ever present. And then emojis, you know, are part of it. So it's like an interest. It's interesting to see the way that these technologies, again, are just sort of fitting into the social landscape and then to kind of unpack their meaning. Like, what does it mean? So I was particularly interested in the differences between like white folks trying to grapple with the skin tone modifiers and um, black, indigenous and people of color, you know, uh, using and analyzing these new tools of representation and the sort of differences in in comfort and critique and approach yeah 
And I and I don't want to I don't want to assume your own um, ethnicity, but if if you do identify as a white person, like what what is it like for you doing that doing that work? Um, and how do you I guess hold yourself accountable um, as a white person in that conversation? Yeah, no, I I'm your uh, average Midwestern white lady, so um, absolutely that's an important question to locate oneself in one's work. Yeah, I um, I often start from thinking about whiteness, like whiteness is kind of a framework that I'm interested in as I approach a lot of different technologies because whiteness has been presented to us through technological apparatuses as um, as both a universal and invisible kind of framework that is often organizing technology. And I think it's important to make that visible and to, to see it right for what it is, which is an ideological framework that is right on in there, you know? Um, and so with emoji, the same thing for me was um, it was, you know, thinking about whiteness and the way that whiteness um, and and other racial frameworks, right, other racial ideologies, um, and shape user interpretation of how they're using technology, um, as well as the designers' understanding of what they're actually encoding, and then the actually encoded encoding, like the uh, the code itself, right, what is actually written into the code. So thinking about those different layers. Um, and, you know, ideologies of race, like, are part of all of that. So I was finding that for white users, particularly, uh, that they, they were like, whoa, skin tone modifiers are introducing a range of questions I've never had to ask before using emojis, you know, like before I would just pop a thumbs up in there and we were good, but now I have an existential question. I have to identify myself as white if I want to choose the white emoji and white folks are not used to thinking about whiteness as a race, as a racial position. They're just used to thinking about it and encouraged to think about it as a universal position, right? And so that's interesting because like there's a lot of alignment to me with how technology is designed. And so that was what drew me into the emoji conversation um, and became kind of an interesting, an interesting point of inquiry because I found that, you know, users of color didn't have that same existential crisis. They were like, okay, great. Finally, some representation choices that, you know, match. Um, they were not uncomfortable with identifying, you know, a, a racial positionality in the interface because um, they, you know, they're always being like interpolated differently by the technology or outside of the technological framework. So that kind of tension is super interesting and also just tells us a lot about our built environment, you know. Um, so it's not just emoji, but we can think about the ways that those same dynamics maybe interplay through a lot of kinds of, you know, technologies. Yeah. And Miriam, you are on the Radical AI podcast, so we would be amiss if we didn't ask you our radicality questions that we love to ask our guests. So uh, I'll start off by asking you first how you define the word radical and uh, based off of that definition, how you might situate yourself or your work in that definition or if you do at all. Sure. So. Yeah, wow, it's such a deep question. I'm glad that you didn't open with that question because I needed a minute to warm up to it. But I really think that when I think of radical, I do think of like, you know, um, a, a change of system, like, a you know, an overhaul of system or a changing um, of system outside of the systematic framework. So um, we're not working within the rules. We're trying to break that and, you know, and find something else. So for me in that process, I think of like, the radical as um, an expression of like potential, you know, like there's a potential for more outside. 
And I find that very hopeful, you know, like the idea that um, that outside of the system, maybe we can be better, you know, maybe we can find freedom or, you know, folks talk about that in terms of like getting free or liberation or or even just thriving, you know, um, but towards a system that represents our own interests. So I think that maybe for my work, um, and I don't know that I characterize my work as radical <laughs> particularly, but I do think that in my work, I am trying to see the systems of technology and society and culture as systems so that we can understand the way power is exercised through those systems and dream something else. You know, so the potential for something better is is in that as well. So as we're recording this right now, it's at the end of May. And uh, as we were talking about before the interview started, the semester just ended uh, for, for you all. And um, I'm wondering, kind of in reflection on that and reflection on your on your students <laughs> from this past semester, if you had like one piece of uh, let's phrase it like this. If you had like one thing you wanted them to have learned from this past semester, like one like ideal like lesson for them to have taken home, taken to heart and like will live forward with it um, inside them, like what would it be? Wow. I think it's just that it's okay to question stuff. You know, um, I had a student in one of my classes at the end of semester. I actually asked them reflections like, what did you learn here? You know, that's helpful for all of us. Um, and, and one student said, I guess it's okay to be critical because being critical doesn't have to mean like, you know, you're just negative. It can mean that you're asking questions, right? And I thought, yes, that's exactly it, right? That we have to critique, especially the things that we love, you know, and use. So um, as a digital media scholar, I didn't study digital media because I hated it. <laughs> you know, I studied digital media because I loved it, you know. Um, and I got involved with online communities and things and that, and that is where I started asking questions about like identity and community and the interface and all of that. But, um, it's definitely incumbent on us to then hold ourselves accountable and hold, you know, those, you know, systems accountable, hold those companies accountable, hold our politicians accountable, um, in pursuit of, of systems that we can, um, not be exploited by, you know, systems that we can connect with others without that layer of extraction happening from. And that's what really, I think it motivates me. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so students stay critical. It doesn't mean you have to give up the thing that you're criticizing. It just means that you're holding it to a new accountable standard. And for students or professors, academics, industry members, anyone who's listening to this, if they'd like to engage more deeply with you and or your research, is there a best place for them to go to do that? Yeah, certainly. I would love for anyone to reach out. Uh, my email address is M-E-Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y, one at ua.edu. So M-E-Sweeney, one at ua.edu. And of course, like always, we'll make sure to include some of the uh, topics that we discuss and also some of your research in the show notes for this episode. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both for having me. This has been a lot of fun. We want to thank Dr. Miriam Sweeney again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And as we always do, now is the time for a quick 
debrief of our very first initial reactions to the interview. And Dylan and I record these right after we re-listened to the interview. And in this case, we interviewed Miriam quite a while back. So it was great getting to hear this conversation again. So Dylan, after listening to our interview with Miriam again, what was your initial takeaway this time? Yeah, so we're about what, like uh, maybe three weeks ago is when we did the interview and now we're recording this uh, outro. And I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I know I always say that, Jess. I say that every single time. Uh, but it's because we have some great conversations with great people. Um, but there was something uh, really special about this interview for me, as, I, as we mentioned in the intro, you know, as Miriam was one of those people who um, really cares about this project that we're doing and was really, I feel like, um, willing to be vulnerable and, and authentic. Um, and it, it felt like a very... Uh, just natural conversation uh, more than an interview. So I, I really enjoyed it, but especially because we also got to talk about some uh, fun questions too, um, which we don't always get to do. Uh, so in this case, we talked a lot about emojis. And I know I kind of like, even before the interview, I remember saying to Miriam, like, Miriam, can we talk about emojis, please? <laughs> um, and uh, and we did <laughs> because I asked about it and she said yes. Um, and uh, there's, I think, a lot more in this topic of emoji design and in chatbot design um, and in voice assistance and, and virtual assistance, then um, we might give it credit for. Uh, there's so many different design choices that are made uh, across the uh, product development cycle. And each of those choices and this is my language here, each of those choices is, is a political choice. It's like, well, who are you going to have representing? Like, what voice are you going to have representing your voice assistant? Um, there, you know, the amount of money, time, and design questions that went into designing things like Alexa um, is, like, is immense. And uh, at each of those decision points, it maybe even each, each of those pain points of development, uh, there were decisions being made and things that were chosen and things that were not chosen. So Alexa could have a very different voice and it would carry itself and represent a very different, um, I guess I'll say like it, it would make a very different impact um, and not different even necessarily in a, in a particular way. Uh, but you get into these questions of like human robot interaction and human computer interaction, which we talked about a little bit in this interview. And uh, those decisions are just are so complex. And I think we as consumers don't always think about it like that. You know, Jess, if I'm going to send you like a thumbs up emoji or something, I, I don't necessarily think about the um, political or gendered or racial implications of that emoji. You know, I just want you to know that I accomplished a task <laughs> or something like that, or that I agree with you. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, really like the, the breakdown of, is about how we communicate with one another. And emojis have created this visual representation and, and symbolism. Do you have thoughts about emojis, Jess? <laughs> it's interesting because recently I've heard from Black colleagues and colleagues of color that to them actually using an emoji was a political decision. Um, and it it's really meaningful because a lot of different organizations don't actually even provide the option for people to use the um, race identifiers or modifiers for emojis. And even the companies that do actually offer the option for a race modifier uh, are kind of making the implication that to not be white, which is the default, is to be other. And that's a political statement in itself, too. 
And this is kind of also touching on something else, which was my biggest takeaway, at least initially, uh, which was this idea of standardization. And you and I have talked at length about this. I know I'm a freak about standardization, <laughs> but really, I think it's it's so important to talk about here because as Miriam said in the interview, and she said it so well, the danger, one of the biggest dangers of standardization is that you're deciding that what is best for a certain population is going to be what's best for all. You're making that value judgment. And so even by choosing something as a default for a virtual assistant, for an emoji, whatever it may be, you are deciding that that default is what is best for everyone. And you are automatically othering everything else, which is a political statement. And that's going to be harmful for some communities. Right. And um, so just just to clarify, so I do, like, I personally do believe that it's uh, a political statement, also a statement about power and as you're pointing to like standardization um what options are available means that we're making decisions about you know what's important uh what we're signaling in in certain ways and, and what we're not and i think that um sometimes and i don't want to use we here because i think we can it's like who who's the we um but i, I can speak for myself where it, it's like i lose track of uh that it is a design decision like when when i do send you an emoji right it's i'm not necessarily thinking about it uh although i probably should be (laughs) right um especially in terms of like intent uh versus impact so i have a number of um black colleagues who are um really you know excited that finally there is like i the most recent example would be band-aids right even in the past week when we're recording this uh, finally, the Band-Aid Corporation is like, oh, oh, you know, I know people have been asking for different color band- Band-Aids for different skin tones for decades now, uh, but finally they're getting on board. And I have some co- black colleagues who are like psyched about that. And also it's like, why the hell did this take so long, <laughs> right? Like it, people have been asking about it. Different groups have been asking about it. So, so why has it taken so long to allow for greater representation of skin color in band-aids especially band-aids that you know get branded as like skin tone band-aids like we'll we'll match your skin you know these are some of the um ways that they're they're branded out there and it's the same thing for emojis and, and chatbots uh, etc it's like issues of representation and these are issues of symbolism um which is something that i i study a lot it's like what are the symbols that we're promoting and what are the symbols that we're not promoting um one of our favorite scholars <laughs> and a previous person that we've interviewed, uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, um, in, in, you know, Twitter conversations, et cetera, um, generally uses like, uh, the, the, the praying emoji, uh, with, with black hands. Um, and the first time that she did that in conversation with us, I, uh, something like really clicked for me, like, oh my God, this is like, when we do the opposite, it's the same thing that we do when we're like, maybe not the exact same thing, but it made me think about like all the different images of like Jesus Christ or images of God, right? The iconography where we're saying, oh, God was white, (laughs) you know, oh, Jesus was white. Um, And there's just like, it's so deeply entrenched where obviously historically that's not like the case, although I guess we can argue about what God means historically and everything. Probably for a different podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's a different podcast. Uh, But obviously you can tell I'm, I'm passionate about this because everything that we do in terms of like translating race in our religious symbolism, but also our social symbolism, like emojis, it it matters. And it's not just like the single time that we use that emoji. Um, it's like everyone 
over and over again, this like iterative process that we're telling a particular narrative, again, about what you're saying, like what's standard, what's not, what's uh, the in-group and who's the out-group. Um, and that is not only political, but it, it can be oppressive, it can be harmful, and it's so tied into that topic of uh, colonization that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Yeah, that was actually one of the reasons why I really loved Miriam's explanation and definition of radical as well, because like you're saying, Dylan, we can choose a narrative that we want our technologies to embody in the future. And Miriam was explaining, well, when it comes to radical, she wants that to be an expression of the potential for changing the system and changing the status quo, fighting back against that. And so instead of using our technologies as a way to forward the narrative that's been happening for hundreds of years that embodies racism and sexism and discrimination, we can have the option to create the future that we want to create instead. Right. And for me, I guess like the, the, the final kind of takeaway from this conversation and listening to it again was like, these decisions matter. Like they matter now and they matter going into the future because it is that, that story that, we're telling um, about how we're representing meaning. And this almost gets to like a philosophical place, but I think it is a philosophical question. It's like a question of what it means to be, what it means to be human, and then what it means to like represent human communication out in the world, which like that, that shit matters. <laughs> it's, I guess that like that shit really, really matters. Um, and it is this like iterative process of, of making, of normalizing. Um, and it's a question of like, well, what do we want to normalize? Or do we even have to normalize? Too many questions to answer in too little time. And maybe we'll get to them in a future inter interview. But for now, for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. Jess, I'm so jazzed about this topic. I want to keep talking about it. No, Dylan, um, we, have to, we have to finish the episode now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we'll try to make it sub one hour. I know, I know. Um, so if you did enjoy this episode, we do invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, Jess, you got this. Stay radical. Nice. <laughs> I'm a professional at saying stay radical. It's okay. <laughs> you are. It's, um, can you get paid for that? <laughs> Jess, I don't know if people outside of California know what the shaka hand is. Oh, really? It's also called the call me hand. Is it really? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it's like a call me symbol. That's true. Let's make a radical emoji. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs>